0: today's show we talk to Kieran Dealey, the former Wexford footballer who is now a sports scientist with professional soccer club QPR over in England, as well as being the London Gaelic football manager. Kieran talks about his own coaching journey, from humble beginnings in his own club in Wexford, to travelling the world applying his trade in professional sport. He details how he combines both professional and amateur sport, and how he brings the same philosophy to both codes. It was a fascinating chat. I thoroughly recommend you check him out on dailysportscience.com or over on Twitter. Interview was done over the phone, so we apologize if the quality is not up to its usual standards. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy. Karen, thanks a million for coming on. Um, you've an incredible journey in your own coaching career. Currently a uh, sports scientist with QPR and also the London GAA's uh, senior football manager, uh, recently ratified again for another term. Uh, you used to be a star footballer with Wexford GAA and I suppose where we first met each other was way back in the day when we were both games promotion officers for Dublin GAA. So I was just hoping you might uh, tell us a little bit about your own coaching journey and how you got to where you are now.
1: Yeah, thanks Stephen for, for having me on um, and it's good to chat after a good few years ago when we were working together in, as GPOs in, in Dublin GAA. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that I I think of myself as very much still starting out on the journey of coaching and and certainly management, uh, but I'm trying to get as much experience in different sports and different clubs and organisations as possible because I think that's the the best way to learn. I suppose my my journey initially started (coughs) doing a a degree in University of Limerick in 2001 in sports science, um, and I just tried to get as much experience as possible with working with kids in, in Gaelic football and um, little bits of soccer. And that was mostly just through my local club, Horswood, back in Wexford in the summer times and weekends and everything like that. And that's obviously something I would promote for anybody who's trying to get into coaching or managing our sports sciences, just to get out there to do volunteer work and helping in the local clubs as much as possible. From there then, uh, after moving to to. to to Dublin after my degree, spent a little bit of time in Finland during my degree actually, to, uh, in um, University of Uppsala, and, and saw a lot of winter sports and everything. And then moved to Dublin and, and started working as, as you say, a games promotion officer in Dublin J. and that was really a great experience because you were you were then in charge, in, in some ways, in charge of the direction of coaching in a whole club and organisation. And um, my club was Templeogue Street's uh Niall Scully's father, Brian, was was my boss. He was a chairman. Um, and I, it was a great experience, as I'm sure you had as well at that time, because you were sent into the schools, you were sent into the club, and there was a lot of freedom there about what you would do and, and how would you promote the games. And, and on a day-to-day basis, you're coaching all types of kids, all age groups, all different levels of ability. And that probably was really where I kind of cut my teeth as a coach because you were forced into situations where <coughs> excuse me, you're coaching kids who have zero interest and zero ability in Gaelic football and also you were looking after some of the really young, talented players like Niles Gully, as I mentioned, uh, in the club. So it really forced you to use all your coaching ability to try and make an impact on these kids and I think I learned an awful lot from that time.
0: Basically, what I'm getting from that is you're claiming all credit for Niall Scully's rise to uh, dominance on the Dublin team. Is that it? No,
1: very, very little actually. <laughs> he was, luckily, he was a little bit—he was older, so he was coming to the end of his underage um, playing career. So, no, I'll, I'll take very little uh, <laughs> credit for him, definitely. Okay. But it was—I mean, it was—I it was, mean, something that I always recommend to anybody who asks me about advice with your coaching career and everything and sports science is to get out and work with the kids because that's coaching in its most in its purest form where you're you're forced to teach a solo, teach a kick, you know, teach, teach a strike or something like that. And so you have to actually break a skill down and you have to be very careful about your language, you know, how, how the, the words you use, I mean, to, to impart your knowledge. Um, so it was a very, very interesting period for me and, and I think I learned a lot. And then after about three and a half years in that position, I just felt that, okay, I needed a new challenge and next step. And I moved over to London, worked in the gym and then started a, a master's in strength conditioning. Um, and in some ways, I was going back to where I began with the sports science and strength conditioning. And luckily enough, <coughs> one of the days, one of her lecturers was doing a bit of work in GPR Academy. Um, and they were looking for an intern to come in and help with GPS and sports science support, um, and I put in my application and, and got that position, and it was it was fantastic. I, like I I couldn't afford to do it. I was working, you know, all day every day. I was doing my masters. I was training the Gaelic football team. I was playing in myself. Um, but it was QPR, and all myself and all my family are QPR fans, and all have been. So I said, right, this is too good an opportunity to to pass up on. Um, so yeah, I mean uh, really from that point on then when I got into the club I just worked really, really hard, you know, I worked like any hours that I could in the club and from seven thirty in the morning and the players had to were in, you know, at quarter to eight and we start testing at eight o'clock every morning all the way on to finishing up six p m or sometimes then i 'm there with the kids as well, the young kids until nine o 'clock um, and I, I just did it you know I grafted and also tried to try to show a bit of talent and, and creativity and initiative as well and luckily then I, I got a full time contract out they were looking for a sports scientist, so I'd worked for them for two or three years then at that point
0: i'm really interested to see. You, come from, you came from the GPO background where it's, like it's totally amateur and you're going into schools with kids of varying talent and as you said earlier, varying interest in sport and you go down into what's a professional setting. Obviously, there's big contrast there. So could you maybe talk us through some of those contrasts and is there anything that, that working as a GPO or even working with the kids in Wexford before that, any tools that you learned there that you were able to bring into that setting? Yeah, I
1: mean the environment was completely different and as you say it was a professional environment so I was working with the under 18 team mostly and they're on full-time scholarships we call it uh, rather than contracts and they do their school you know, in-house, um, they're training practically every day they have all the support around them support, um, system. the support system the biggest difference really is that and from a coaching point of view and a sports scientist point of view is that we get access to the kids' Uh, all day every day you know so even if you look at like the ultimate professional team in the G8 at the moment is, is Dublin followed by Mayo Kerry etc but even those guys have to get up and go to work on a Monday morning and you know they have to get their physio done at training or in the evening time or their, their gym session the difference with these is that these are 17 18 year old chaps and they are full time and they can focus solely on becoming better footballers Uh, And that makes our job, obviously, much, much easier then. So we're around them all day. We have time to actually spend on individual players in the gym or chatting to them about their their stats or their results or whatever it is. The other big difference, of course, is that in the football, in the soccer world, there's resources available to us. So we'll sit around in the morning and have a meeting and chat about the the training that day. And there might be, you know, 12, 14 full-time members of staff sitting around and they might be talking about one player. Uh, So that will include (coughs) maybe the academy manager, uh, it could be three to four coaches, two sports scientists, uh, two physiotherapists, maybe nutritionists, maybe sports psychologists, maybe the educational manager, um, maybe the welfare uh, officer. And they're all speaking about that particular player and what their needs are on that particular day or going forward so it might be we might have a discussion about how their education is going how their fitness is um how they're playing off on playing on the left hand side is going and what he needs to do so you have a whole huge inter interdisciplinary team speaking about one player and remember this player is 17 years of age may or may not make it into QPR first team probably won't play a Premier League in their career, might end up with a League 1, League 2 in, in England at some stage, so the amount of resources and time that that player can get is is huge, you know, it's just not comparable to a GA player at all, um, and that, that's the biggest difference, and, and that will remain the biggest difference because the GA is an amateur sport, um, now, for for us as practitioners, then, of course, that, that makes our job much, much easier. So so I go into QPR every day, and I still don't think that actually this is my career, this is my job, because I I kind of feel like somebody is going to find me out at some stage. They're going to go like, come on, what 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 are you doing? This is not a Apart from my mother. She says, when are you going to get a real job and, you know, this kind of stuff? But it does feel like, you know, God, we're actually getting paid to do stuff that we love and to use our sports science knowledge and coaching knowledge um, to improve these players. And then on a Saturday, we, Saturday we, okay, we have to work on a Saturday morning, but we're going along basically to watch a football game of, of these elite young players, to be obvious, versus Chelsea and Chelsea's lovely training ground. And, you know, it doesn't feel like, like work at all. So the environment is very different. But on the other hand, a lot of the principles of performance are the very same. and and of coaching are the very same. So, for instance, we would have, you know, myself and yourself working as GPOs in Dublin, we still need to be able to engage with the player, engage with the athlete. We still need to have knowledge of the sport. Uh, We need to be good coaches or good sports scientists. Um, Every player ultimately is the same. Like whether you're a 12 year old playing down Temple Oaks Street or an 18 year old in QPR just breaking into the first team and trying to play in Loftus Road, all the principles are still the same. They still want to get better. They're still very determined, um, highly motivated people. They're probably extremely talented talented players. Um, they're athletically very good. Uh, they're very determined in, in their outlook. Uh, and they're willing to put in time and try to improve and listen to their coaches to get better. So, like, the crossover, actually, it's a huge crossover between working with an amateur Gaelic football kid or adult Uh, or or camogie player or uh, women's football and working at the elite end of football even Premier League in in England because you're still dealing with players you're still dealing with people so a lot of what I learned as a GPO and even as a player for Wexford applied across because ultimately I think what I think in, in, in football clubs is that people understand sport or they don't and then Luckily, I've always felt that I understand sport and what it takes to perform and and to do well. Um, some people don't, and they they struggle in football clubs. And other people who do, and they add in their, you know, physiotherapy knowledge and experience stuff like that. And then you've got a good practitioner who can try and help the player to become better.
0: A big one for me, listening to you there, is how you're saying that that a lot of the stuff transfers across from the professional sport to yeah. the amateur sport. Um, Could you maybe give some examples of of what you've learned as a sports scientist or maybe from your experience of working with QPR that you could bring, let's say, to the the London GAA setup or another GAA setup that you're involved with? So limited access time, probably less technology, but maybe give us some examples of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm in a very lucky position because I actually get to do that on a a near day-to-day basis because... I'm still working in the GA, luckily, uh, you know, as manager of the London team. And and it, that then is what you're talking about in terms of we don't have the technology, we don't have the funding, the resources, we don't have the training facilities, but yet we still have to perform and, and play well and, and develop the young players. So it's a really good experience, actually, to be working across the both codes, you know. Um, what I take from this, the professional soccer Arena is certainly their focus on skills at the game. So, in terms of if I go along to a a men's Gaelic football team session, whether inter county or club, there'll probably be very, very little emphasis and focus on the skills at the game. So, they'll probably go after a warm up, they'll probably go straight into some sort of small sided game or scenario or some decision making drill or something like that and there's a whole and then on fitness and they're shooting and you know maybe some little upper body endurance strength work at the end in, in a circus um, and that'll be the session and it's great and the players will improve and they're being put into decision making scenarios and everything like that and it's fantastic and then we come to the game on a Sunday evening and for instance their kick passing will be going astray and they, they, they can't get it into the player. So then they say, right, we, we need to hand pass, we need to run the ball instead of kicking it into our forward line. And the manager and the coach will often say, we keep on to our players then about their, their lack of ability at kick-passing. Our kick-passing is so poor and the players will talk about it and everything like that. But when do they actually spend time on that? When do they actually look to improve those skills? And in, in soccer, they do. You know, so the first half an hour, maybe 40 minutes of the session. The session might be only 75 minutes or maybe 90 minutes long. But the first probably 30 to 40 minutes will be, uh, will be focused solely on the skills at the game. So they're constantly working on their passing, constantly, again and again and again. Um, and also their touch, their trapping at a ball. We, we call it core skills. So at the beginning of every single session in the academy, all the teams work on core skills, maybe... Touch controls and other things as well. And that's just pure repetition of little short passes, then lengthening it out, you know, two touch, trapping the ball, dead touch, um, outside to the boost. Then they do things like quite turns, Zidane step overs, um, inside hooks, outside hooks, keeping the ball up in the air, two touch with their partner, heading over and back. And like this can take half an hour, you know, or even 40 minutes. So it's that determine the focus, deliberate practice on the skills of the game. And then it's no wonder then on a Saturday morning when they have a chance to showcase what they've learned, that their touch is so good, their passing is so good, their heading is so on cue, um, just their movement, how they address the ball, because they've done deliberate practice right through the week. Whereas when you come to the GA world, a lot of times you have a player who's fast, who's strong, who has good attitude, but
0: can't kick the ball. What you're saying there is a really, really valid point. Uh, so you're talking about developing those skills as the first 30 or 40 minutes for your um, session. But how do they yeah. do How do they integrate that? Are we talking drills? Are we talking small sided games? Or, or could you give us maybe some, some examples of how that is yeah. done?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing is always just every player with a ball, you know, working. On their own with the ball, and then the coach will give a shout about, okay, um, keeping the ball up in the air, or uh, uh, feet only, or knees, or heads, and stuff like that. Um, and integrated within that is the core skills of the Christ turns, the land step overs and everything like that. And that will progress on then into with partners, and with partners they can keep the ball in the air, but with a partner. you know. So whether that's with heads, with and knees, with feet, um, and then getting the ball on the ground and doing their passing. So it's just over and back, over and back, over and back. And I wouldn't call it drills because there are no cones, there are no lines, there's no waiting, Um, there's no kind of set routine like that. The players are just passing pop, 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 constantly the ball over and back. And then the the amount of range of passes that you can do is immense in in soccer, just as it is in football, in Gaelic football as well. So it's like the... The old thing of, when I went to Good Council College down in New Ross, there was a lot of Kilkenny boys there as well, as Wexford, as well as Wexford. And the Kilkenny lads were just constantly there with the hurling ball, just striking the ball over and back, you know, before school, after school, PE. And it's no wonder the Kilkenny lads were so good then, you know, at the skills of the game. That was their foundation. So when we're coaching and, and training the kids in QPR, that's the foundation we we call it extreme technique so that's the foundation of what everybody has to have because if you don't have technique you're not going to work uh, you're not going to get in as a, a professional football player um, progressing on then as you say into like small sided games and very tight little areas of you know you see the Spanish team working on the rondos constantly and so that's like a, a 4v2 or a, a Uh, you know it can be a 5v1 whatever it is in a little grid and then the 5 on the outside are just keeping the ball keeping the ball and the player or the two players on the inside are trying to intercept and get the ball and all that's doing is just teaching players to perform that extreme technique then under extreme pressure so it's small sided um, very little time and it's just really forcing them to be quick thinkers and to, to perform, execute the skill perfectly then in, in highly pressurised situations. So that's really what, what takes up a lot of, of the, the session, especially in academy. But still, when you go to first team level, they're still working on their passing, they're still working on their core skills and it's something then that I've introduced into the London Gaelic football team because our team of all teams need a lot to work on the basic skills. And then at the beginning of the session, I can give a shout out, and the players actually just run through their own, you know, routine with one or two other uh, partners, and they just run through their kicking, their hand passing, their dummy solos, their soloing, kicking off their wooden side, all these different things, and it just becomes like a routine, and it becomes ingrained into them. Then working on these skills, um, it, I mean, the, the other thing that I've probably taken from professional football is just the focus on every individual. So. In Gaelic, we're, we're highly focused on the team, which is right. But also then, if you want to improve that team and improve the quality, you have to improve every individual. Um, so we come up with teams called, for the players, individual learning plans or individual action plans. So we sit down with the players, we speak to them then, we look at the four-corner approach um, of technical, tactical, physical and psychosocial. And in each, in each quadrant then, we'll ask them, OK, so what do you want to improve on? What do you feel that you need to improve on to become a better player on each of them? So in physical, it can be um, speed over the or acceleration over the first 10 metres. The skills can be maybe, you know, shooting with their with their wooden side um psychosocials can be maybe speaking up more in the dressing room and becoming more of a leader and tacticals can be you know working as a defensive unit when we're out of possession so just simple little things like that and then us as coaches and sports scientists then will add in little further details and say okay so for you to improve that what exactly do you need to do then? So how are you going to become faster over 10 metres, for instance? And us as C coaches and sports scientists will say, OK, right, we'll get you to a couple of reps at the beginning of each session now on the pitch and also tailor your gym programme then to work on that. And again, that's something that I've brought into the London setup. Like That's where you can be innovative and you can have a good group. You don't need technology, you don't need money, um It's like each individual player getting time and and effort and putting into them. And as you know, like every player loves people talking about their game and talking about, right, how can we improve... Stephen, for instance, what does he need to work on? And then you can feed back to us and say, well, this is what I feel that I need to work on. And the manager comes along and says, yeah, those, and I'm going to add in another thing. And that's that's your individual action plan that we refer back to all the time. And we, we... keep an eye on and say well okay what did you do tonight so I'll ask the players maybe at the end of the session so what did you work on tonight for your individual action plan and I'll ask Liam Gavigan our captain that what did you get out of the session tonight where did that fit into your individual action plan and for him it might be it might be the shooting in the phase of play and then his direct opposite number Philip Butler as a defender might be dealing with one v one situations in the defensive third, for instance. It might be the same the exact same phase of play, but those two players have got specific outcomes relevant to their individual action plan from that. So that's that's definitely something that I've taken from professional soccer and tried to put into into the GA.
0: I think there's a couple of key messages there. the, the, the something as simple as a ball per player is so mm. so simple but it's such a key element that, that for, as you said, getting the touches and improving the skills, but also the level of detail in terms of your four-corner approach, for in terms of your planning, your training sessions, and then the individual action yeah. plan. I think that that's, that's people, anyone coaching out there, that they are things that they can bring into their own coaching as well. And I think that, that getting an insight into that is hugely valuable. Myself definitely would be really interested in terms of what sort of technology you guys would use, particularly in the professional setting, I suppose, and and then what sort of stuff you could maybe be able to transfer across into the amateur side.
1: Yeah, so we're we're lucky in terms of, of the football working in a football club that we've access to technology and, and funding. We're we're not Manchester City, um, we're not you know, we're not Tottenham or, or Chelsea who have bigger, even better funded academies, but then they're they're probably bringing things on even to another level, you know, completely. Um And the exciting thing is that I think the English Premier League, in terms of its structures and obviously its funding and things like access to technology, is probably at the forefront now right around the world, you know, alongside... The NFL and actually, interestingly, the, the Aussie rules in Australia as well are really at the forefront. But we're very lucky because there's so much money in the English game at the moment that there is access to these things. Like, like most, like practically every sporting organisation or team at the moment, we we have the GPS and the heart rate monitors. Um, We've been working with that now for the last probably five or six years since I've been there. Um, and look, it, it, it's great. You know, it gives you some really good information. Um, the good people will tell you that it it's, stats create a conversation. It doesn't. It doesn't tell you actual outcomes and finish arguments. It actually opens up a conversation so that you can look at a, a given player. Darnell Farlong our full back and say okay he's after covering um, 11k in that match he's covering maybe 30k right throughout the the training week Um, is he managing to sustain that or is he at risk of injury Uh, normally it's not actually used to say that a given player is not training hard enough you know a lot of people think that GPS is great because then you can hammer your players who are lazy it's actually not you know it's not used for that it's more used as a a kind of a, a, a potential injury prevention um, tool because you can see that, okay, if he's hitting 35K, 40K every week, well, then maybe we need to take care of him a bit better and that he'll want to keep pushing himself on and on and on. But at some stage, something has to give, you know, like the, the, the human body, it's it's basically it's how it's using energy so that if a player is constantly producing these massive amounts of figures, something has to give at some point along the way, Um, and often that can be, he may pick up uh, a little illness because his immune system is suppressed, it can be picking up a fatigue-based injury, Um, it can be some sort of chronic pain in his lower back, for instance, or he might just get demotivated, he might just get sick of training and playing every day, so it's our job then as the practitioners to kind of try and spot that, to try and see that from the data and say okay he's at heightened risk at the moment of perhaps picking up some little injury um, and then to try and act upon that But the, so the GPS is great, it's, it, it doesn't tell you everything but when you add in other things, other little bits of data which I'll mention in a second um, you get a fuller picture but with all these things, it's really it's how you engage with the, the player and the athlete is the most important. You know, I, I know that's kind of a cliche, but it's, it's it's a cliche for a reason because it's true. So the players will come in in the morning um I'll show them their GPS results from the previous day and then also they'll do their wellness questionnaire such as asking them subjectively, uh, how did you sleep, how's your nutrition, what's your mood like, what's your motivation and stress, Um, do you have muscle soreness? And then that's good subjective data that we have and we can act upon that. Uh, speak to the physios and speak to the coaches about it. Um, also, then we do counter movement jump every morning. So it's just a, a simple measure of lower limb power. Uh, and we on an um, opto jump, so it's electronic mat. Um, so it just measures the height that the player jumps. And then we have the averages and thresholds then based off the based off standard deviation from their averages about how much that player is deviating on that particular day from their norm values. Uh, so if we see that, okay, he's 10% or he's 15% down on his norm values, well then we say, okay, there's something going on there. He's either tired, demotivated, um, potential illness or you know just something there's some soreness or injury and it can be just demotivated that guy may have you know made a mistake in the match on Saturday morning and he's coming in Monday morning and the world is a bit of a crappy place and that's his way of kind of letting us know that yeah, I'm a bit down and a bit depressed about that um, and again that's just where the little kind of messages that you need to spot and I think the, the more experience you get the better you get at seeing those things and listening to the players because ultimately the most amount of information I'll probably get from that player is just having a chat and saying listen how are you how are are things don't worry about that mistake at the weekend you know everyone makes it and it's just you're getting more and more pieces of information um then I speak to the, the physiotherapist uh and then the coaches so we are meeting with the coaches and for instance it might be a case of just mentioning that okay he's a little bit down he's fine he can train no problem um, and that's it you know it can also be then that if they're down in their jumps and their questionnaire is is results are suppressed also you speak to the physio and you say okay well maybe we might modify him so he do all the session pose and then at the end when the games are happening we pull him out Get him a little bit of recovery, get a massage into him, um, a little bit of rest, and get get him into lunch, and that that can be it. He might come in Tuesday morning then and flying fit. So that you're using the technology really to make better informed decisions, but actually a lot of the subjective data is probably the best you know that you have at you, um, available to you, and then it's the same when you're working across codes, then into the Gaelic football or Camogie or or in AGA sports you may not have GPS but you can ask RP so on a scale of 1 to 10 how difficult did you find that session so if that's a 5 out of 10 a challenging average session and then multiply it by the duration of that session so if it's a 60 minute session um, you come out with 300 units and then that's your training load that's your measure of training load and in terms of questionnaire like you can either have that on pen and paper or an app. Plenty of apps out there, but it can be just a case then of just asking the players how are they feeling, how are they getting on. So there's lots of stuff that you can still do best practice without the technology. Technology does make it easier. You know that that that's certainly true. Um, yeah, I it's think about it's, trying to it,
0: it's really really. Your skills, yeah. yeah, it's really really interesting to hear you say that about all the tools that you use and all the technology that you use, but you still bring it back to being yeah. the actual engagement with the athletes or the talking to the athletes, that person-to-person contact as being the most important. Um, yeah. Just just Absolutely. to clear up something real quick there, Karen, the RPE you mentioned, is that rate of perceived exertion? Is that what it means? Yeah. Just for anyone who's, yeah. who's not familiar? Sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah. so I mean, rate, rate of perceived exertion
1: is it's, it's – um, it's a tool that has been used right throughout the research and, and it's a very valid and, and reliable tool. A lot of people will say that, well, it's subjective and you're asking your athletes um, how di- how difficult, physically difficult was that session and they can lie and tell you, you know, misinformation. But if you're asking them every single day, after every single session, they'll get bored with lying. And it'll come to the, 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 the situation where they'll just, you know, they'll be... They'll, be, they'll tell the truth, they'll give a, a kind of a, a realistic score. Um, and then it's up to you as a practitioner that, well, I know that Stephen always gives a little bit less, actually, than what it probably was as a session. And that's, again, that's good information for me as a coach and a sports scientist. It's interesting in terms of if you're working in different roles then within a setup. So, for instance, the player will probably tell most to the, the physiotherapist you know the physio is like the psychologist in the setup, and the player will say, "I'm tired, I'm sore, I'm annoyed about the game, and whatever." The next level up is probably the sports scientist because he he know he or she knows that. Well, the sports scientist probably. Little bit knowledgeable in this area and will be open more and they'll probably tell more to that person. Then they'll probably tell the coach a little bit less. So they'll say, Yeah, no, I'm okay, you know, legs a little bit sore but I'm fine and then when the manager comes along, he's like, Yep, hundred percent. No problem, I want to pitch. So it it can be interesting, the information that you get, depending on what you what your role is in the setup, can be different from a player. So then when I go to the My Gaelic football team, players rarely tell me that they're sore and they're tired so that means then that because they want to play you know they don't want to tell the manager that they're sore and tired they want to say yeah I'm 100% right so that's where then you need good people around you so you need to make sure that right you have a good sports scientist you have a good physiotherapist and they feed all that information back into the manager you know because ultimately the player is probably putting across that message to the physio Knowing that that physio is going to at some stage mention it to the manager, mention it to the coaches. So that's an important kind of stream of information that's going there. And the the, the important thing in that then is that within your setup, like, everybody has to be singing off the same hymn sheet. You know, there has to be loyalty there to the setup because if the physio is telling the player then that. OK, you know, well, I wouldn't have played you because you're sore. But then the coach is saying, no, you need to play. but well, that's when problems can occur. So you need to make sure everyone is, is singing off to him, same him cheese.
0: You've talked a lot about, in terms of their, the skill development and how technology can use and stuff like that. But in terms of bringing it back to any, let's say, novice coaches or coaches looking after a, a, a youth set-up team, um, yeah. what would you say, what's your top tips to, to develop the athlete let's say so putting this we, we've covered the skills in terms of ball per player and small side of games and stuff but in terms of athletic development right. what would your, would your top tips and advice be
1: yeah i mean for, first of all for a coach obviously it, it's good to have some some foundation level of knowledge in these things um like i think goner the days that you're just uh, an snc coach and you just focus on a player they're working the gym, or you're a skills coach and you just work on their skills. Like nowadays, what you have, and I think especially in the GA world, because it's an amateur organization, you might be working as a coach, but you probably should have some sort of knowledge and experience in. S&C and the, the, the physical aspect of the sport as well and same if you're an S&C coach you'll probably end up doing you know on-field warm-ups and some coaching drills and stuff like that on the training pitch and on match day so first thing is getting that knowledge there are loads of courses out there there's lots of online stuff um, the IRFU run a really good weekend course Satanta down Turles do lots of online courses as well um, and even the FAI run, I, I, I believe, a few workshops. It's something that I hope the GA will bring in more uh, as regards courses for people coaches to, to do S&C. Um, I've been speaking to Tom Ryan, you know, Director General in GA and some of the other lads in Corp Park about the need for that, and I, I really hope we can kind of push something forward for the GA in terms of that because I think you, you probably see Stephen on the ground that there's a real need for you know, that information to be put out there, relevant best practice information. Um, in, in terms of the athletic development then, <clears throat> I mean, there should be in every club... In every uh, organisation and athletic development document, you know. So, what do you what do you believe as a practitioner your players should be able to? Do? So, there should be the physical movements. Should be, you know, they can squat, they can lunge, they can hinge, they can pivot, um, they can hold their own body weight. You know, they have efficient movement, etc. And that can go from you know the type of work that you you do in in terms of. Movement literacy and simple little things like uh, body weight movement, all the way up then to doing squatting, deadlifting, bench pressing, chin ups, stuff like that in the gym, and hopefully Olympic movements. So you know you're hoping that there is a kind of a document there. If there isn't in your club. There's loads of information out there. You know, there really is right across the internet and everything like that. Um, clubs are starting to put out really good stuff. Recently, Arsenal put out a really good research document about the work that they do the, in, in the academy. Um, and I know Ryan really well. He's the head of Academy Sports Science there and Athletic Development. And he came from the IRFU and Connacht Rugby. Um, and they have a really good... Physical develop long term physical development program set up there. Um, I'm a huge believer myself. Like Devs will be very focused on getting young players lifting weights and doing movements in the gym. Um, as long as they have proficient technique, now our philosophies would differ in terms of. I haven't seen that many young kids with really, really good technique and it takes a long time to work on those things. So in terms of QPR, like up until the age of um, 16, kids will be just doing body weight stuff. So they'd be doing bodyweight squat, split squat, lunge, plank, side plank, um, single leg balance, all that stuff, bridges, uh, hamstring work, all that kind of stuff. And for them at that age, with the high load they're doing on the pitch, I believe that's enough. That's enough for them. And that's something you can take and put, implement into the GA then, because you don't need any equipment. You know, you can do it on the side of the pitch, you can do it in a hall, in a classroom, and that's just simple movements that the players are becoming aware of their bodies and their movements and good, strong technique. Um, And there's a direct link then onto the pitch, whereby, aside from anything like injury prevention, but just efficiency of movement. And because they're going through their... You know, their peak height velocity and peak rate pl- velocity, in other words, like their growth spurts, they probably need a lot of that work, you know, because their body is changing so quickly and so dramatically. Their bones are getting longer, their muscles are getting stretched further, their coordination is, is affected. Probably their playing tech, their skills technique and their playing ability may be affected, especially around the age of like 13 to 15 and, and at 14 you know they don't know what they're doing <laughs> and you need to take that into account um so that, that's all really important stuff and you can do this on the side of a pitch the stuff that i really love myself personally is the locomotive work so i mean a lot of the courses will 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 teach it as asap so uh acceleration speed agility and play metrics. so asap so they're the locomotive stuff and we do that with the under-12 team in QPR, and we do it with the senior football team in London, You know, because nothing changes, really, because a player has to be able to cut and move. A player has to get up to maximum speed. Um, they have to accelerate, decelerate. Hopefully, you can do a little bit of plyometrics as well to to work on the elasticity of the muscle and, and the power um, and the stretch-shortening cycle. So this is all work in that it's applicable for a 12-year-old as it is for a first-team footballer or a a commodity player or a Gaelic football player. And that's the stuff that I love most because you can see the transition directly from that onto the pitch. So, for instance, a little drill that we will always do with, with both groups is the mirror drill whereby there's a two cones five metres apart and me and my partner so Stephen you'll stand on one side of the, the, the line of between the cones I'll stand on the other and then you lead and side shuffle left to right changing direction over and back and then I have to copy your movement and it's as simple as that and we can do that for 20 seconds 20 seconds on maybe 30 seconds off and all you're doing is working on your reaction on your cutting on your change of direction and your agility and your body awareness and if you think about then you go out and you play camo, you know some of the girls go and play Kamo We are we playing Gaelic football? That's exactly what you're doing a lot of times. You're you're tracking a man. You're reacting to to a different stimulus, and you're changing direction in in turn in response to that player changing direction. So there's a, I really love the locomotive work because there's a direct link between the two, and the, the kind of the scale of of exercises and drills that you can do is endless. You know so. After being in GPR for three years, I left and I went to um, the Indian Super League Soccer uh, League for, for a season. So we had a short season of four months and I worked with a team there um, and we did loads of that in, in football. And we did it with the ball, without the ball, one v one situation and they loved it. And there was, you know, the players, first team players were Indian, Portuguese, Brazilian, Spanish, English. It didn't matter, you know, what culture they came from that... They love these little games where you have to react to a different cone or a different whistle or to an opposition player. Um, and you can see then the reactions then from that out onto the pitch. Um, so these are the simple things that can be done without any technology, uh, without any you know great funding or resources.
0: I think it's a really striking parallel with what you're saying there in terms of developing the basic movements and stuff like that before you can move on to... Uh, the more advanced stuff, and but when you think about what you said earlier on about developing the basic skills before you go out and trying to do it on a pitch on a Saturday. We have a few questions that we like to ask everyone we have on the show. So we've covered yep. uh, bits of them already, but I'm just going to go through them. Um, what does the term successful coach mean to you?
1: I suppose there, there are two aspects to that, what I think is successful coach or su- successful coaching. One is on the pitch, one is off the pitch. So, on the pitch of successful coaching to me is when you see, a, a, for instance, a pattern of play that you've been working on in training actually happen then in a match, and even better, in a competitive match. That to me is successful coaching because it's you've got the players around, you've worked on specific things, whether in a, a little game or a phase of play or a drill or whatever it is, um, you've worked on that and tried to, to kind of ingrain that into the players because you've identified that this may be a successful pattern of play and then you actually see it happening in the game. Uh, and to me, that that gives me kind of great joy, you know, so you see it actually happening. And that can be as simple as, you know, uh, I went to the, the Leinster final of Leash versus Dublin and I saw the way leash put a big man inside on the square and thought that that may occupy Dublin at times, the full-back line. And, you know, it, to all intents and purposes, it, it worked to it it was relatively successful, let's call it, in the first half. And you see that wing forward, dropping out, playing the ball first time, diagonal ball, um, into full forward, he wins it, lays it off to the centre forward run name and he taps it over the bar. And I'm sure that's a pattern of play that John Suger worked in the, the, the weeks leading up to that game. And that to me then that would give me great joy to see that on the pitch, you know. The other side is, is off-field in terms of, like with, with London, we're, we're not very successful. You know, we don't win many league games or, or certainly not championship games. Um, and at the end of the season, like that is obviously difficult and frustrating, but at the end of the season when we're finished and players come up to me on the quiet and say, listen, I really enjoyed the year. Uh, I, I developed a lot as a player. To me, that's certainly successful coaching because that doesn't matter what level you're playing at or or coaching at, it doesn't matter if you have the resources of a Mayo? it doesn't matter whether you're working with young kids, that's just a player coming up and saying that they enjoyed the season, they improved as a player and they had a bit of a laugh along the way and to me that's successful coaching.
0: The next question we have is what's the best book or resource that you'd recommend to any coaches out there listening?
1: I used to read a good few books around the university time and, and also, like, when we were GPOs back in Dublin, there, were, there was a lot of good resources, you know, coming out from GA, actually. Huge, lots and lots of good stuff and other coaching books and best practice books. Um, and there's a lot about kind of facilitation and facilitation coaching and experiential learning and things like that. So, I, you know, I kind of devoured that kind of stuff. Now, I have to say that I spend a lot more time reading books about for instance Pep Guardiola you know so there's a really really good book it's it's called Pep Guardiola Another Way of Winning and it's written by a a Spanish journalist um, his name is Gillian uh, Balagui so it's a different one to pronounce but he's basically followed his career and he wrote a book about the the first few seasons that Guardiola when he took over Barcelona and the the difficulties that he had and the things that he did and his philosophy on coaching and that's the kind of stage that I'm at now is I like reading about these top coaches and the things that they do so Pochettino Klopp um, even going back to like Rio Sachi and guys like this that um, Johan Cruyff what did they do in terms of their coaching because what you find is that these are people who really, really understand sport and understand performance and the kind of structures and things that they put in place, to me, is something that's really interesting. Um, I also read McGuinness's book and took an awful lot from it, the kind of things that he does. I hope Jim Gavin at some stage will come out and write a book and tell us how he does it. Um, So I I would say to anybody is go and get, you know, in university and all, have loads of books about how to coach and everything like that but also dip your toes into books as well about individuals and what they do and people who are top of the game and that can be all types of support because you get lots of information and to be honest I use Twitter a lot for that Yeah, I, I use Twitter as a kind of a, a work apart from a bit of fun a working resource whereby there's so many good articles out, out there on Twitter now follow go to the top people in the industry uh, follow them, and you'll learn from them, so for instance, in terms of sports science i listen i I follow um Martin Boucher, so he's the sports scientist at t s g in in paris at the moment um previously worked in aspire Academy in Qatar and you know, the stuff that they're putting out there is just fantastic on heart rate analysis and GPS and locomotive stuff and strength and sleep um, analysis. And it's just really top quality stuff. And the point is, is that go to those guys. You know, don't, I'm not going to go following the the fellow who's working maybe in Gillingham. I'm going to go and follow the guys working in Barcelona and PSG and see the best of the best. And the same in terms of the GA. You know, read the articles by... Um, Paul Galvin by like Michael Foley by Malachi O'Rourke and all the Jim McGuinness like these are the guys who are Mike Quirk Dan in Kerry these are the guys that are putting out really good information about kick-out analysis and tactical analysis and, and learn from them you know and I must mention as well um, I have to say I love I listen to every week or twice a week um, Colin Parkinson's GA or the podcast so I I do I, I pick up an awful lot from that I learn from that in terms of GA um, tactical analysis and everything like that, and you know, there's so much good analysis going on, so much good information out there. Uh, there's a there's a wealth of knowledge to be we learned.
0: Well, I suspect you may have a few more Twitter followers after people are listening to this, uh, Karen. Um, <laughs> the the last question uh, we have is: uh, you've covered an awful lot already, so feel free to to, to answer quite quickly if you wish. Um, what are your top tips for developing coaches?
1: Yeah, I mean I suppose I'll, I'll, I'll go over a couple of things in summary really. Um, first of all is is get that foundation of knowledge. Um, and the best way of getting the foundation of knowledge is by doing the courses. So not everybody can do a degree in sports science or S&C or in coaching science, but for instance you should certainly get your foundation level one, level two in, in, in um, of the GA coaching courses and I'm sure that the Camogie, the ladies football have, have brilliant they, well I know they have brilliant resources out there as well and courses so get that information in you know get that knowledge in there because these are great courses and like every course that I ever go on and workshop you learn something from so there's no there shouldn't be any inter-county manager out there who thinks they're too for their boots and they can't learn on a foundation course you will um the other thing then is get experience you know get out there and get experience and whether that's walking in just your local club or school then fantastic i would recommend also that people go and work with kids because um you know you're going along this is i i we we London play a senior football match here, and uh, we wouldn't lose it all or whatever. And it's great, and you're working at the league end. And then I come back and I, I play with my girlfriend's kids, and they're seven year olds who have no clue about Gaelic football, and they want to learn how to do a solo or do a kick. And I get as much joy out in the garden just kicking around with them and trying to show them how to do a solo as working working with lads at the league end. And that to me, that's pure coaching. At the at the, the the youth stage, because they maybe can't put together those things in their mind about dropping, releasing the ball, pointing your toe up, kicking it with the the, the along your laces, catching it again. It's like little. You know, you remember from back in Dublin, GA, like when we were, used to go to the in-service, that these are all brilliant coaching points, but maybe a kid who's really young, they can't put them together into one fluid movement. And that really challenges you as a coach then to actually go, OK, how am I actually going to teach this? How am I going to coach them to, like, release the ball at the correct time? So I would always recommend to, to go out there and get experience, especially with kids. Um, I think... Being very, very open-minded is really important. So I don't think I know everything at all. I really feel like I'm on the beginning of my coaching journey. I had a 15-year-old in QPR who taught me something the other night about physical development where I went, Phew, yeah, actually, that's true, you know. <laughs> I didn't think about that. So you're constantly learning. And if you are not an open book and willing to take in information and learn from other people, well, you're actually the guy who knows nothing then at that stage. Um, I think then as well, like I soak up information, so whether that's stuff on Twitter or in articles or reading the newspapers, even reading interviews with Jürgen Klopp, um, I think it's a good way of approaching your coaching and your career in terms of you're out there reading up on stuff and learning and you're constantly kind of challenging yourself. And the day that you think that's it's done and you know everything there is to know about coaching, well, after the day that you're, you're
0: going to be in trouble. Listen, Kieran, it it's been great having you on. You've given some fantastic yeah, insights cool. in both the professional and the amateur coaching side of things, particularly yeah. in terms of the fact that the engagement with the athletes is, is, is paramount and the fact that you're always open to learning, and I think that's really important. And I'd just like to thank a million for yeah. coming on. Thanks for listening to The Coaching Bubble. I hope you learned something that can help your own coaching in some way. Anything referenced on the show, like books or podcasts, if you follow our Twitter page, at Bubble Coaching, we'll put everything up there. You can find us on SoundCloud. We'd love some feedback, so feel free to leave a comment or a review. Once again, the show is brought to you by the Coach Education and Development Centre of the Camogie Association. Thanks for listening. Till next time.